0: You're listening to Almost Diplomatic, a DC-based podcast that discusses geopolitics, national security, a whole bunch of nonsense over beers. And as a disclaimer, the views and comments made during this episode are those of the participants and do not represent any entity that they volunteer with or are employed by. Enjoy. everybody, welcome to Automatic. I'm your host, Ryan Young, and joining me today
1: is... Robert Thomas. Lex Cardone.
0: And recording on September 6, 2020. Hey guys, how's everybody's
1: Labor Day weekend going?
2: Uh, it's good to have a three-day weekend always, so can't complain.
1: Yeah, not much of a weekend on my end, but you know. Yeah,
2: yeah. you're, you're, you're working on your... Oil.
0: You're working on that self-imposed exile.
1: Working on all kinds of things. So <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, haven't done anything at all. I'm just it's like well, more weekend time, yay. But um as you see in the title, we're talking about uh Shinzo Abe, who is gonna be resigning soon, actually the next like ten days, I think, um, officially from the his his role as Prime Minister of Japan, and we're gonna talk about how that's important before we get to that as always what are we drinking um rob you got something fancy you're, you're gonna last uh lex what are you drinking
2: uh i am drinking a port city october Octoberfest um special beer that just came out um you know it's fall september uh it's pumpkin spice latte season and it's also yeah. uh, Octoberfest beer season <laughs> so um yeah just happy fall everybody yeah Yeah,
0: and it's gotten it's starting to get darker so much earlier now i've noticed like the last week or so it's 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 usually it's like there's still some light out like a couple like a month ago cool Uh, i'm jealous i'm drinking uh so from uh i went to outer banks we did the last episode Uh, i did it from there and i had basic a hard seltzer i still have basic a hard seltzer and instead of grapefruit that's unfortunate i have cranberry and it's awful (laughs)
1: I'm shocked,
2: truly shocked.
0: Well, the grapefruit one was not bad. This one is not.
2: Make it a mixie.
0: Oh my god, I have vodka.
2: What on? Maybe for the post show.
1: do Doo, doo. So, you should probably cut mm-hmm. out this interlude while you retrieve the oh, vodka yeah. Yeah. and I yeah. put us at risk of copyright infringement lawsuits with Jeopardy yeah. music.
0: Yeah, because you are so dead on. <laughs> now, let's we'll see how it is. Add some uh, vodka.
1: Experiment.
0: Tastes kind of the same. I should add more vodka. I don't know. I'll, I'll mess with it. So, <laughs> so, Rob, what are you drinking?
1: So, I'm about to crack open a bottle of Tamano Hikari. Sake that I picked up uh, at the last minute at the Osaka Kansai airport around uh, r- last September when I realized I didn't have any sake to bring home because uh, Lex and I drank everything that we bought while we were there. Um, and this sake brewery in Kyoto was founded in 1673, according to the label. So they have some history behind them.
2: Wow. I'm jealous. I uh, I had to I remember that, I had to run and catch my plane, so I didn't have time to hit up the uh, duty free section, but yeah. So how is it?
1: That's good. It's a well balanced one. Um okay. not too sweet, but kinda kinda middle of the road, very smooth. Um, this would go really well with some like light fish sushi. Some some sort of okay. like white fish, not not something as rich as salmon maybe. Um, but I'm a fan, and I will be drinking a fair amount of it because the size of this bottle is not small. Pitter-patter. Let's get at it.
0: See how much you can finish tonight?
1: <laughs> a lot.
0: <laughs> fair.
1: I, I'm a big sake fan, so I can go through it pretty quickly.
0: Challenge accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so anyway... Rob, why is it important that uh, Shinzo Abe is resigning, and what does his legacy kind of look like? Probably from the—we're going to get into it more, but what's the the basic breakdown? The basic hard seltzer breakdown. (laughs) Oh,
1: gosh. Yeah, uh, I will refrain from incorporating any of your hard seltzer references. That is your own crime against your body to (laughs) navigate, and only you will bear the consequences of that. The rest of us will do our best to stay aside, I'm sure.
0: It's, it's only um, 90 calories, Rob.
2: <laughs> that's cute. He's <laughs> looking out for his figure.
0: Vodka makes it better.
1: Uh, yeah. That's I'm sure that's not a high bar. But anyway, <laughs> as far as our actual uh, rationale for the topic today, I would say twofold. One, I think in recent years, a lot of, uh, a lot of folks in the U.S. in particular have paid less attention to Japan um, if they're not specifically involved in work in international trade or Asia-Pacific security stuff. Uh, But Japan is and remains a huge player on the world stage, especially in the Asia-Pacific in terms of its economic heft, in terms of being part of a, a key web of relationships in the densest populated and uh, most economically important growing region of the world today. And although it's kind of an interesting topic that I'm sure we will hit on multiple times during this conversation, uh, though on paper Japan's self-defense force is sort of not considered a real military, it is in fact one of the uh, most well-equipped capable military forces on the planet. Um, so Japan is a very big player in the world in a way that, uh, often gets overlooked these days in the West. Uh, so that's one reason why a change in leadership there is well worth taking a look at, but domestically from a Japanese perspective, uh, it's also especially noteworthy because Abe is the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history after, a period of basically a revolving door prime ministership where uh, they were turning over prime ministers uh, like nobody's business
0: what year on it, year wasn't it i think i think it was five in between it was, abe was in 06 07 and then he had to resign uh, again because of, because of illness and then it was like five before, before 2012 and they all asked like less than like 15 60 months
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was an absurd turnover, which led to huge uncertainty in uh, Japanese policymaking and international relations in a lot of ways and domestic policymaking, certainly. And I mean, when you when you have turnover like that, no one's very ambitious in what they're going to put forward at the policy level, because (laughs) you don't know if there's going to be time to implement any of it. Uh, whereas Abe came in for his second stint as prime minister, actually, um, for a, an extended, quite robust uh, term, and then another term, uh, and was able to push forward in ways that will talk about how good or bad or successful this was, a, a consistent policy agenda for years after a huge gap of that. So... He's now uh, resigning uh, from his second time as prime minister, uh, just like his first time for medical reasons. He has a chronic medical condition that's flaring up again and uh, at least publicly indicated that he didn't feel up to up to continuing with the the workload of the job, though last I have heard, he is still planning on staying in the parliament Um, and I'm sure will continue to be a powerful force uh in party politics uh but this is this is a big change um this is this is big set of shoes to fill and i'm sure people will be looking to see whether this turns into another revolving door period or whether whoever comes next will have some staying power
2: yeah Um, how was he able to uh, what did he do that his immediate predecessors and i guess post uh, people holding the office after his first stint, uh, what was he able to do to keep his coalitions together that um, the other revolving door of prime ministers weren't?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, there are probably multiple ways you could slice that. Um, I mean, certainly I think he's had a, a bolder, more forward-leaning policy agenda to, to rally support behind. But, I mean, he's also, I mean, he's a a political blue blood with a lot of family legacy in Japanese politics, including some uh, uncomfortable legacy going back towards the the World War II period, um, but has has a lot of heft, a lot of influence, and managed to very successfully navigate the coalition dynamics in the liberal democratic party, the ruling party in Japan, which is, you, you could think of it as a a roughly center right party.
0: Well, actually I wanted to kind of come back to something that you said earlier. We discussed like uh, the, his changes to the self-defense forces and that kind of stuff. Do we want to talk about, you know, his changes that he made in all of his, like to the military and to um, national security as a whole for Japan? Well,
1: yeah, there, there's one, one more thing that I, I want to throw in first though, to, kind of finish answering Lex's question about why Abe had the staying power that he did mm-hmm. because this this I think is also important to what comes next and that's the disorganization and inconsistency of the opposition in Japanese politics um, They there's sort of this amorphous mix of usually one major and several minor opposition parties uh, that have had very limited time actually in power, uh, including during that, they, they had one prime minister in that revolving door period. Um, but as far as funny timing goes, just this month, um, there is a scheduled merger of, of uh, the Democratic Party for the People and the Constitutional Democratic Party, uh, which will be the new major center left opposition party. And I had to look up uh, just before this exactly what the current names and arrangements were because there is such a turnover of mergers and splits. Uh, And so really whoever manages to keep their position straight in the LDP is pretty much set right now as far as uh, national politics go because the opposition is just too inconsistent and fragmented to mount a real challenge in an election.
0: So yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the succession a little bit later. Um, but right now I kind of want to touch on Abe's legacy and everything he's done for Japan and kind of why he's kind of revered as like one of the most important leaders since World War II. And no- notably he's been kind of like there's some of the shifts in Japan's military structure and like defense because you know it's been a very pacifist style country, and like they don't have they don't have a self defense forces, not a real military technically. I mean, but it operates as as such.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess as framing a little bit, one of the key ways that Abe's uh, policy positions have been sort of articulated is making Japan a quote unquote normal country again in terms of its uh, Mm -hmm. security posture, foreign relations, et cetera, and kind of moving beyond the uh, understandably unusual legacy of World War II and the American occupation period. And probably the most direct and obvious aspect of that is the status of Japan's military. Um, the, The Japanese constitution... Uh, which was put together during the American occupation with uh, very extensive American involvement, uh, has a a provision in Article 9 that basically blocks Japan from, arguably from having a standing military um, and from using war as a way to settle international disputes. And I think some folks have kind of framed it as Abe has been like a huge rupture from the no standing military thing. In reality, there have been decades and decades of sort of incremental adjustments of, well, what exactly does that mean and how do we frame it? And before Abe came into office, the majority opinion had at least shifted to the idea of basically Japan can't maintain a truly offensive military equipped and focused on power projection beyond its beyond its own territorial defense um well you can have quite a lot in terms of uh military personnel and equipment that still fits within a more defensive model um yeah, and
0: i guess um they uh, i guess like, they're not allowed to have aircraft carriers but they have tons of uh or not tons but have a bunch of helicopter carriers
2: yeah, I mean, yeah, which in they, a pinch could be rapidly converted to serve that purpose. Yeah, I but mean, also
0: the, the new, the new F 35s also have vertical lift. So yeah, I was just some of those models.
1: Yeah, I was just about to say. I mean, some of their existing ships, like the the Izumo, um, one one of their uh, major top of the line helicarrier type ones. Uh, that's that's one that has been flagged as something that could be uh, upgraded to. Uh, to handle the F-35s short takeoff variant. Um, So, so, I mean, so basically you have a situation where even though Article 9 says Japan in theory doesn't really have a military, uh, in effect, it does. Um, Expanding uh, Japan's military capabilities has been a focus under Abe. So has shifting the policy... Uh, about when and how Japan can use military force. So a big and controversial shift uh, a couple years back uh, while he was in office was basically uh, issuing a revised interpretation of Article 9 indicating that Japan could act uh, militarily in defense of allies where that was considered key to Japan's own security. Whereas before, the U.S. would be called upon under our security commitments to defend Japan if Japan were attacked, but the reverse wasn't true. Um, Whereas the new interpretation kind of shifted that. Um, So that was, I mean, that seems sort of like a small thing on paper in some ways maybe, but it's a pretty big deal. Uh, And it was very controversial. But really, the, the sort of key golden trophy that Abe and a lot of his political allies have been aiming at for years is an actual revision to the Japanese constitution to eliminate a lot of those Article 9 restrictions. To uh, basically have Japan, again, have the military uh, capabilities and policy range of a quote-unquote normal country. And that is something that remains very controversial among the general public and among a lot of active political groups, and that is sort of the one that got away uh, for Abe in terms of something that he he is now leaving office without ever having gotten the the conditions right to be able to get that through.
0: Yeah. He also established other things, like in 2013, he created the Japanese National Security Council, like to basically mimic like what the U.S. has to have more national security focus and have a real national security plan. So it's different for them too.
2: Yeah, he's also done a lot. I mean, in addition to military, I think Rob, you also pointed out to his uh, sort of diplomatic offensive. It's sort of been. I mean, he's 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 linked. Um, He was the first sitting. uh, Japanese Prime Minister a while to uh, make a state visit to Beijing. He's reached out to uh, regional powers like India and Australia strengthening ties. Um, now India and Japan, or uh, Japan and Australia have a pretty strong relationship. Conversely, he's also put into question the uh, relationship between Japan and South Korea um, largely due to um, disagreements stemming from the uh, Second World War. Um, Which and so I think in South Korea he's now has like a three percent favorability rating, which is actually below Kim Jong Un's uh, rating of nine percent. And Putin and Xi Jinping. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Yeah. I mean,
1: this is an area where the international relationships and domestic politics are totally impossible to meaningfully disentangle. Uh, And I, I think for. Americans, World War II is as the the generation of folks who fought in it are are increasingly passing away, World War II is becoming sort of this almost caricaturized, long-distant thing that's easy for people to separate themselves from. Whereas in East Asia, uh the scars that World War II left and and that the period leading up to it uh, with japanese imperialism left are much more live raw issues in politics across the region didn't didn't abe and i think it was like 2015
0: basically give the speech like he's like this is the last apology speech we should ever give in regards to
1: world war ii i I forget the exact uh wording there there was some statement sort of to that effect And and i didn't come off to me at the time as being Overly accusatory about it, but it but it was very much sort of in the Japan can't keep apologizing infinitely forever sort of vein, right? Which, on the one hand, makes sense. Um, At some point, kind of life must go on, and we have to look at who's doing right by each other in the present. Um, But on the other hand, there's I mean, there are still open questions about how much restorative justice has has been done to help surviving victims of war crimes uh, committed by Japanese military personnel. And frankly, Abe Abe and a lot of his associates are uh, involved to various degrees with more far-right groups that at least sometimes, seem to uh, pivot into some disturbing denialism about the reality or extent of Japanese war crimes during World War II and during the colonial occupations of Korea and uh, other parts of, of East and Southeast Asia. So if, <laughs> if those ties uh, and statements weren't in play, it would be one thing, but those add another layer of uh, reason for suspicion uh, by by a lot of Japan's neighbors. Um, yeah, and and by a lot of domestic critics in Japan. Yeah,
0: it's like the Nippon Kaiji, I think is how you say it, is the Kaiji. one kind of Kaiji, and they're kind of known for that's the kind of their stance on the World war too, and they have some denialism, like you said. I think that's the big issue they had North, South Korea was uh the the comfort women, or you know the yeah. sex slaves, which they actually yeah, were. Yeah, and the World Nippon and Kaiji,
2: the Nippon Kaiji, they were. Um, well, their big point, so to speak, if you can call it that, is that there wasn't the, this level of, of uh, um, coercion involved in the comfort women issue, which pretty much across the board, historically speaking, you, you know, you can um, has been debunked. Uh, so that sort of mindset. So it's, it's and it's something that I guess when he said um, because you're, you're right on the one hand, like you can't keep apologizing forever. For the past, um, but the way he said it, it came across as as um, incredibly dismissive and abrupt to the South. So that's that's not going to win you any friends and one of their most important trading relationships, in South Korea.
0: And also, it's like the one other like major democracy in the region.
2: Yeah,
1: right. And yeah.
2: this, I mean, this
1: makes things especially challenging. I, I mean, being a little bit. Um, home-centered here uh, from a U.S. perspective uh, in terms of navigating the challenges that, that China is increasingly presenting in the region, having uh, our two major allies in Northeast Asia, Japan and South Korea, treating each other as on the same side is a pretty important thing for us in terms yeah. of coordinating uh, a, a about our shared responses to some of these challenges and that's not happening right now. And that's not like a brand new thing of like the last couple of years. That's been, I mean, that's been a, an area of Uh, challenges for (laughs) for, for the entire, the entire post-World War II period uh, with periodic flare-ups. And we are definitely in one of those flare-ups. And I I mean the, the quote unquote comfort women issue. And I, I agree that's a, a softer term than we should really use for, uh, yeah, for, sex slaves, sex for, for, right. for a form of slavery um, that that is definitely a particularly key aspect of uh, the, the challenges that have gone on there. And there have been attempts to establish like mechanisms for reparations and and so forth, but that getting any sort of approach to making amends to the extent that you can make amends for something like that. Uh, has been getting any sort of solution that makes everyone—I don't want to say happy, because you can't be happy with something that yeah. horrific—but um, but, I, I, but except, that gets accepted. everyone satisfied with okay, we've dealt with the issue from a policy perspective at least—is has proven to be an insurmountable an insurmountable hurdle each time that there's sort of an agreement that seems like it's gonna sort of put that issue to a close uh, domestic uh opposition in one or the other country ends up constraining the hands of diplomats and it ends up not being closed yes. and again this is this is a very raw issue for a lot of i mean a lot of women in south korea alive today who were victims of this uh mm-hmm. shrinking numbers as the years go on at and, and that generation uh, ages, but this—I mean, this is not this is not something that is in the distant mists of time. This is living memory.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a problem that's going to go on for a while. So we kind of touched on that. He's part of this—you know—he's a special advisor at least to this—you know—far right group. Is is Abi a nationalist,
1: and if he is, to what degree? I mean, I think it depends on how you define nationalist. Yeah. I, I think sometimes we use that term in an overly narrow way that refers to particularly extreme sort of rabid uh, a- attitudes. But really, nationalism is a much, much broader and more varied phenomenon uh, historically and today. I mean, if you think about a nationalist in that broader sense as someone who is uh, sort of a, a super patriot and committed to uh, the distinctiveness of their country um, in in key ways. And more inclined to focus on questions of, say, domestic national honor than on uh, more abstract issues of international justice. Um then yeah, I would say I would say that that Abe falls in, in that broader definition. Uh, the question is how how aligned has he really been with the more extreme fringes of that? Because there are a lot of heads of state today, mm-hmm. uh, heads of state and heads of government in democratic countries today who are uh, nationalists in the broader sense, uh, some of whom definitely, are definitely, more, not,
0: definitely not America,
1: some of whom are more um, prudent and sober than others.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. So who's gonna be the yeah. lucky winner for next prime minister? <laughs> Come on down.
2: Uh, I would have to bet somebody <laughs> somebody in the LDP.
0: So that would the opposition, um, we, as we've established.
2: It's not going to be the opposition, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, be, before – be, I, I one right. more thing. That, yeah, Ryan, before we head into that, oh, sure. I want to just briefly touch on another uh, major aspect. I know this is, we, this is a, more of a foreign policy-focused uh, podcast, but um, it's worth mentioning um, the situation that Japan's economy has been in for the past several decades and the – Um, Abenomics is what it's termed as. It's a combination of uh, qualitative easing um, from the the Bank of Japan, uh, a fiscal stimulus, which largely through a government spending program, and also structural reforms uh, to the economy. For the first um, part, generally, the monetary easing and the fiscal stimulus have been relatively successful. I think Japan had its first uh, couple consecutive positive quarters Since the 80s, Um, however, you know that's um, that has it's also been criticized a lot, saying that you know the uh, the Japanese government is injecting all this liquidity into the the market, so it's a lot more fragile than it appears. Um, Right now, we're not totally sure where it's going, um, but it's definitely a a sort of an interesting strategy. It's been an interesting strategy to deal with what. Japan has been has been termed in Japan the lost decade since their um, their economic pro, um, prominence I mean they're still the third largest uh, economy in the world super influential which has helped kind of it's helped their stature at both home and abroad um, you know th- what we were talking about wouldn't have been possible or their influence um, both regionally and globally wouldn't have been possible without um, a uh, a sort of economic band-aid but there's been there's been um, a lot of controversy to how effective the value-added tax st- structure has been and all that so it's it's an interesting um, side story but it, it really runs beneath all of these um, uh, these subjects that we've been covering
1: well and a couple I mean a couple quick points in response to that one would be <laughs> economic health is a, a huge underpinning of Uh, every other aspect of national influence and position on the world stage. So, yeah, at one level that's domestic, but it certainly has huge international implications. Uh, Two, in some ways, Abenomics is particularly distinct simply for its boldness uh, in that it it really was planned as a a very comprehensive, systematic approach to... uh, to really turn around the Japanese economy in key ways. It's not every day that a national economic policy is considered so distinctive and important that it gets named after the uh, the, the head of government or head of state yeah. that is pushing it. The next thing that I would say is a big concern about Abenomics this this whole time has been, the the rhetoric around it was sort of framed in terms of three arrows. Uh, a, Fiscal policy, monetary policy, and structural reform—basically, regulatory issues and other things affecting the the actual structure of the Japanese economy and how pro, how productive they were and that sort of thing. And the idea was always that the the fiscal and monetary policy the policy pieces would sort of create the space for the structural reform. Uh, they they would kind of keep things afloat to overcome the short-term pain that's involved in things like regulatory changes and disruption of industries. Part of the question problem has been to what extent the, that third arrow, the regulatory or structural reform piece, has ever really gotten off the ground to, to, to operate successfully. And I think yeah. that is, to date, it has not. In, in a meaningful sense But then the final Thing that really complicates it is Just like everything else In our lovely lives these days COVID um,
2: <laughs> yeah. Which has I ne-
1: been i never, never heard huge... of it Yeah well I mean Ryan You <laughs> you do live under a rock With your uh, horde of Natty Bo and Old Bay and Maryland Flags and not much else so I, I understand that sometimes you You miss these things
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, uh, not just yeah, not just like the the twin the left right body blows of um, COVID and the U.S. China trade war, which we were in. We were in a trade
0: war. Oh my god.
2: uh, We still are. (laughs) 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 Oh, and the um, by far the biggest um, you know country caught in the crosshairs of this is Japan, which is you know. Two of two of their biggest trading partners, the US and China, are now locked in a pretty bitter feud that's impacting economies all over the world. I would argue none more than Japan in terms of, yeah. uh, you know, pound per pound.
1: Financial damage. Mm-hmm. Although I would say that in Japan's case, the the effects are more mixed than in the cases of a lot of other countries because Japan is a fully industrialized, sophisticated, high-tech economy. So for them, the the question is often a more nuanced one of how is this affecting particular industries or companies based on how those particular industries or companies have positioned their relationships with the U.S., China, or other countries that are heavily linked to one or the other economy, uh, as opposed to... Being say a, a developing country that is uh, pr- very heavily reliant on being a, an input contributor to some Chinese industry that in turn exports heavily to the U.S., uh, Japan has has more complex, diversified options to work with, uh, but certainly it's not a fun storm to navigate through.
0: Yeah. Well, um, is I mean we, it was like you know, like this. Like the last couple of months, Japan decided to like they basically have. I think it's I feel what how they described it or like what it's categorized as, but basically a deal to cu- multinationals like in Japan that um c- produce stuff into China basically to move it out of China. And then in the last couple of days, it's probably come out that they're gonna move a lot of that stuff, they're trying to get to incentivize them to move to their uh, production stuff to uh India.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, that points to another relationship that's been very interesting. Uh, in the Abe the Abe administration, which is uh, a real effort to strengthen ties with India, um, <clears throat> I mean, though the domestic pol- politics are incredibly different, uh, and the and the economic structures are incredibly different in Japan and in India, there are certain ways in which. Uh, Modi in in India and Abe in Japan have a lot in common as sort of nationalist-leaning politicians who have put a lot of their political reputation into the idea that they are more economic pragmatists um, and are both sort of committed to carving out stronger positions for their respective countries in the international scene. Uh, So there's, I mean, there's been a lot of indications of sort of a strong leader to leader relationship uh, that has emerged there. But that's also important in the context of the relationship with China, too. Because, I mean, Japan has sort of been threading a, a needle of trying to get relations with China on a more positive Footing, but also hedge against China as a as a challenger or threat. And there's a lot of interest among security and strategy folks uh, on both sides of the Pacific in trying to forge more of a sort of quadrilateral relationship between the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia as yeah sort of sort of an alliance of democracies mm-hmm. that can collaborate to hedge against aggression or um, coercive diplomacy or coercive economic measures from China in the region. Um, So far, that has not really materialized uh, as anything uh, like a a true four-part collaboration. Uh, But certainly, the Japan-India link has... I think strengthened at least to some meaningful degree under, under Abe and Modi.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. because we are starting to run out of time. We're still got, we still got time. We're still doing good. We need to talk about that, not the opposition. The opposition is a joke. Uh, we don't talk about the um, <laughs> talk about, there's about like 10 or so people who are, who are apparently throwing their hats in for prime minister, but uh, who's the most, who's the most top contenders and who was likely to be prime minister.
1: Um unless something very weird happens, it is almost certainly going to be Yoshihide Suga, uh who's the chief cabinet secretary. Um uh, he's he's considered to be a very pragmatic, sort of longtime LDP party insider who's not really aligned with any of the factions in the party. Uh he, he's kind of been a guy to corral all of them in to go in the same direction and so he's i mean he's been a a hugely important member of the cabinet in the abe administration for just sort of the legislative side of getting stuff done by getting everyone to get on the same page and agree to coherent policy uh and he was he was the favorite before he even officially declared that he was running. Hmm. now he has declared that he is that he is in <laughs> running um so it, it is almost certainly going to be him um because he's gotten already the buy-in of all of the major factions in the ldp and so he's he's a relative consensus candidate for the for the folks in the legislature and the way that they are doing the leadership race this time is normally they would have a mix of, uh, like local local delegate votes and votes from members of the parliament, uh, and to do it in an accelerated timetable, although they've kind of like shifted back on this a little bit, and there's been some stuff about like some sort of primary mechanism for selecting delegates. Basically, this time has looked like it's going to be more in the hands of, uh, of just the legislators who are on board with Suga. Um, the, the next likeliest, uh, piece, uh, if something uh, threw it is, off, would be Shigeru Ishiba, who's a former yeah. defense minister, who's very popular at more of the grassroots voter level, um, but is not anywhere near as uh, popular among the the uh, folks in the legislature. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Well, based on based on what I've been reading in the American press, um, it's the the reason he's going to uh, be the next PM is he can do 200 sit-ups. He does 200 sit-ups a day for his fitness routine. So that's how you decide who leads Japan. It's who can do the most sit-ups. Trial uh, by I'm, combat. I think that's about 195 more than uh, Shinzo Abe could do. So. Well, given he that the poor man is issues. suffering
1: from a bowel condition, I oh, wouldn't yeah. advise
2: he be doing any sit ups.
1: Yeah, he is. Look, look, bad bad of... yeah.
0: <laughs> look at Lex making fun of people who are sick. What else is new?
1: Uh, make... <laughs> so, in a, a minute. Lower blow than Ryan. Wow.
0: Yeah, that says something. Terrible person. But anyway, um, in a minute, using a minute at a time, what's stuff that they have to deal with? covid
1: <laughs> well i, I it off so i'm going i'm going to bet on suga becoming prime minister he's expected to represent continuity with abe's policies uh, including abenomics and the general approach to international affairs and international security um, but a lot of stuff is very obviously unresolved i mean Huge issues with uh, still navigating the response to COVID and the enormous economic disruption that that's caused in Japan. It's disruptor It's it's been the biggest dent uh, and downward decline in their GDP, like on record. Um, it's it's a huge huge blow, um, which is going to disrupt uh, all of the disruptor. economic reform efforts um, going forward. Uh, they're. Is of course everything we talked about about the complex relationships with uh, China, India, and most um, ig- most sort of uh, unpleasantly with South Korea uh, and all the hostility there. Uh, oh. Still, still, uh, I mean, there are still lingering issues with North Korea, but who doesn't have those? Um, yeah. And and <laughs> another one of those those weird little World War II legacies that Abe was hoping to close out and didn't was, uh, there is still no World War II peace treaty between Japan and Russia. Um, and so technically there are still some territorial disputes between the two with some of the Northern islands. Um, and that, that has also not been closed out, even though it was very much on Abe's, uh, sort of, uh, priority list. So I, I mean, really a lot of continuity there in terms of what were the Suga is almost certainly going to be the next PM and he's very much a continuity candidate. So the things that are on his to-do list are very much the same things that were on Abe's to-do list. I'm sure he will have some unique projects or priorities of his own too, but I, I expect a lot of consistency in what the challenges are and what happens next?
0: Okay, well, we're basically out of time, but I have one last question. Um, could we see Abe come back again?
2: Third time's the charm, right?
0: I mean, he, he got sick, and he got settled, and he came back again. I mean, he's getting up there at age. He's like, I think he's like 65-ish, something in that range, but still. Yeah.
1: So he would be youthful yeah. in an American presidential contest
2: it's, this year?
0: Yeah, this is very true. <laughs> this What do you mean, this year, yeah. most years?
2: <laughs> he's certainly, <laughs> oh, this is I mean... I don't think that's far outside the realm of possibility, but I I think it's, at this point, I don't don't know what he's thinking career-wise, but he can still be, as we mentioned, a very powerful um, power broker within the Japanese legislature. So does he want to just take a quick break, or does he want to be that behind-the-scenes guy uh, for the remainder of his career, however long that is? I don't don't know, it's hard to say.
1: Yeah, I I mean, if his health improves enough... I think the the time where he might try to run again is if you ended up with a lot of infighting in the LDP, leading to another revolving door sort of situation. Yeah. Whereas, right. like, if if you've got like Suga staying in there for for a number of years, very consistently, and you've got a sort of clear successor lined up, and that sort of thing, and and things look like they're kind of running smoothly, I I think he would want to still be a very engaged player but i i at least don't have the impression that he would want to rock the boat and risk some of their shared goals as a party by throwing a wrench in things that way i don't i don't see him doing like a teddy roosevelt bull moose party run sort of (laughs) thing with one of his own successors already in the role stably yeah makes sense all right
0: yeah, no, I agree. It's like it's like he could come back, but like everyone said, like there's it'd be it'd have to be a lot of uh, extenuating cir- circumstances that would allow him to come back, you know, and not ruin everything. But anyhow, yeah, that was almost too medic. Thanks, everybody.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.